0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. It is great to be with you, to look at God's Word with you. Get myself set here. Let's pray. Ask for help. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you're a God who speaks and Really, the high point of worship is to be with you as we listen to you. And so give us eyes to see, Lord, ears to hear, hearts to believe. Uh, Let the intent of this passage have its way in us. For your glory and for Jesus Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. All right, so we're continuing through the book of Jonah. And as we've seen, the biggest deal is not really the fish, is it? It's not. The biggest deal is what God accomplishes in rebellious hearts by his grace. So just to remember, Jonah is a story with four main episodes. Two weeks ago, we looked at chapter one, the prophet runs and is exposed. Then chapter two, last week, we saw the prophet realize his need for God's grace. He's a sinner just as much as anybody else. And then chapter three today, God's grace has done some of its work in Jonah's heart, and he begins to obey what the Lord has told him to do. So just as review, catching up, let's look at some of the parallels between chapters 1 and chapter 3. Look at verses 1, 1, and 3, 1. 1, 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. 3, 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. He's getting a second chance, isn't he? It's the same message. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. What does God tell Jonah to do? Arise. Go to Nineveh. Call out against it. Jonah's getting a second chance, isn't he? Same calling. Uh, Look at a third parallel, chapter 1, verse 3. Well, Jonah did arise in chapter 1, but he arose to disobey God, and he disobeyed zealously, right? He went as far away as he could uh, from doing what God called him to do. But now in chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah arises to obey God carefully. That's what some of those following verses show you. He goes all through the city for three days, doing what God told him to do. Then the fourth parallel, chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah runs away from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 3, what happens? Jonah does according to the word of the Lord. We want to make two observations here. Did you see in one verse three and three verse three, uh, one verse three, Jonah runs from the presence of the Lord. Three verse three, Jonah does according to the word of the Lord. Do you realize something here? The presence of God is known as His word is heard and obeyed. Yeah? That's how we know the presence of God. That's why we're here, isn't it? That's why the, the heartbeat of our worship is hearing from God's word and believing it. That's how we know His presence. Second thing to realize, when the heart tastes God's grace, when the heart tastes God's grace from God's word, the result will be obedience. Chapter one, Jonah ran in rebellion. Chapter two, he he learned his need for grace. And this is what happens. Anytime the heart learns its need for God's grace, you begin to obey. You begin to obey. So next week, we'll be in chapter 4. We'll finish the book. We'll get another view into Jonah's heart. And I'll just warn you, it won't be pretty, OK? Just like our own hearts. But for today, for this morning, Jonah is obeying. And we get to see this amazing thing that happens in the city of Nineveh, of all places. So what this chapter is about today is primarily Jonah's message and the city's response. That's what we're going to think about. Jonah's message, the city's response. So did you notice what Jonah said in verse 4? Follow along in your Bibles, page 775, Jonah, verse 4. What did he say? 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So, What does that mean? You, you, you've got a limited time left. And then at the end of that limited time, God is going to wreck you. His judgment is going to come hard on you. He's going to overthrow you. It's, it's devastating language. Some argue this is all Jonah said, eight words over and over again. Um, I don't think that's right. Um, but certainly, this is the core, or at least the summary, of Jonah's message. It's a message of impending judgment, right? That's exactly what it is, impending judgment. God is going to smoke you for your evil deeds. Like most things in this book, it's rather shocking, because what happens? Jonah preaches judgment... And this community of violence-loving Assyrians, what do they do? They actually listen and repent. It's amazing. And what's even more amazing after that, even though they've done all this violence, God relents from bringing his judgment on them. Shocking, shocking. Just more examples of God's shocking grace. So here's what I want to see with you as we walk through this. Number one, shocking grace in the message of judgment. Number two, shocking grace in the mercy of repentance. And then number three, shocking grace in how judgment and mercy come together for us today. All right? Shocking grace in the message of judgment, shocking grace in the mercy of repentance Shocking grace and how judgment and mercy come together for us today. Then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is the perfect summary for all of it. First of all, the message of judgment. Many are offended at the idea that God would bring judgment. True. Our cultural moment seems to believe that if there is a God, his main job is to forgive us. And his, his second job is to tell us we're fine just the way we are, right? And so the idea of Christians proclaiming a message of God's anger at sin and his impending judgment like, a, like the wall of a dam about to break, well, that message not just is not appreciated. It seems bigoted, old-fashioned, intolerant, and all the rest. Our enlightened society, it is said, should be progressing past things like that. And some Christians even say, right, we should talk about grace, not judgment. But as Jonah, this chapter, this book, the entire Bible shows us, I mean, look, in this case, right, the message of God's judgment is not opposed to grace, The message of God's impending judgment is grace. It is grace. So as we start thinking about this, because I I wonder if some of you aren't quite convinced even yet, I want to give you three reasons why the message of God's judgment is loving and gracious. Number one, the message of God's judgment is gracious because it's honest, it's honest. Wouldn't you agree that most, most everyone wants to believe that justice in some form exists? Everybody believes that from their conscience. Even if they say they don't when you steal their wallet, that's wrong, right? Everyone wants to believe in justice. In fact, it's kind of amazing when you think about it. Human beings, they just intuitively seem to believe there is a standard of right and wrong. In some way, we should all know it and be accountable to it. Listen even to, it doesn't matter what religion, they could be atheists. Listen how they argue with one another. You're wrong, you did X, Y, and Z. Listen to political debates. You're wrong, you did X, Y, and Z. And just the ability to say that or believe that at all implies there's a standard. And we all know it and we're all accountable to it. I mean, the heart just knows this, but then you just, you just think sometimes, how can such a thing like justice, right and wrong, actually exist? Well, to me, the only way it makes sense is that justice can only exist. It, it, justice can only exist if there's a righteous and holy personal God who is just. It's got to come from God. Other, otherwise, any idea of justice, it's just going to be a matter of feeling and opinion. It really is. It's going to be relative and not objective, and, and it'll come down to just who has the power in the moment. There's, there's got to be a God if there's justice. There is justice. There, there, so if there is such a thing as justice, there has to be a God of justice. And Well, then just keep thinking. If there's truly a God of justice, now just look around. Our city, our state, our country, our world, ourselves. If there is a God of justice, guess what? Judgment's coming. (laughs) It's coming. If there's justice, there's a God of justice, and he will bring judgment. And it's coming. And we deserve it. Imagine you go to the doctor and you have the terrible disease. Do you want a doctor who's so loving that he tells you everything's fine? Or do you want a doctor who's so loving, he tells you what's wrong and what you should do about it? The message of God's judgment is grace. It is loving. God made us in his image to represent him in the world. His standard is summed up in two things. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself according to his word. We have not done it. We not only have not done the good we should should do, we have done the evil we should not do. And that's macro and micro. It's our communities, it's our nations, our history. It's me. It's you. I deserve God's judgment on my own. It's a loving message because it's true. It's honest. Second reason, the message of God's judgment is loving I think it's loving because it gives hope to the oppressed. Hope to the oppressed. Here's one example, Psalm 94. Let's look at verses 1 to 2. Look, look at God's name, one of his names. Oh, Lord, God of vengeance. Do you have a radar for this in your mind? One thing God does, what does he do? He gets vengeance. O God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. And you might think, wow, that's judgmental. Well, this psalm echoes out of the real world. Look at verses 6 and 7. Look who the psalmist is thinking about. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. There's people out there who abuse their power to wreck and enslave and slaughter the weak. And sometimes, there's nothing the weak can do about it. And it's wretched. Where are they supposed to look? Where are we supposed to hope? Well, listen to the rest of the psalm, or some of it. Look at verses 8 to 9, 8 to 10. Understand, O oh dullest of the people, you know what makes you really stupid according to this psalm? Okay. Understand, you idiots, right? Fools, when, you be, when will you be wise? Here's some wisdom for you, okay? He who planted the ear, what? He hears. He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? Verse 20. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Look, you have leaders in authority doing evil. Where are the, the poor, the weak, the powerless to hope? Verse 22, the Lord has become my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. If you live in the real world, the world where horrible evil takes place, sometimes the only hope for the abused, the weak, the powerless, who's gonna bring just vengeance on evil? Our God will. Our God will. I once came across uh, this longer quote from a guy named Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian theologian, and he's seen some horrible abuses, And, and he did this lecture on what can motivate not living in revenge, even when you've experienced horrible injustice. And so... He, he, he talks about this, and he also responds to this kind of progressive idea that God is always just accepting love. OK, so I want to share part of this quote with you. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human's violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. He continues, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. You summarize the thesis we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non coercive love. No. Soon you would discover it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. (laughs) Do you see what he's saying, though? The only hope for not living in revenge when evil has been done to you is the knowledge that God will get vengeance for you. Doesn't Romans 12 say that? Don't get vengeance. Why? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So again, this is another reason why the message of God's judgment is love. One is, it's honest. Number two, it actually gives hope to the oppressed. It actually motivates the ability to love your enemy and not get revenge because you can trust that God will bring justice. Amen? Third reason, The message of God's judgment is loving. The message of God's judgment is loving because it gives the opportunity for repentance. The opportunity for repentance. Back in Jonah 1 verse 2, God told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And we said a couple weeks ago that word evil is nuanced. Number one, it does show that they are wicked and guilty, but it also shows that they're miserable and broken, and they need help. And it's been interesting to read commentaries and books about Assyria, Jonah. They're historically known for their passion for violence. They would boast about skinning their enemies and hanging skins on walls. Imagine a culture that values this kind of a thing. We can, and we, we see that their own value of violence is ruining, it's corrupting their own community. And can't, can't we see cities and communities corrupt, corrupted and ruined by wicked values? They're broken. They're guilty. They need to change. What's going to be the catalyst for their change? God loves you. You guys are fine the way you are. They already think they're fine the way they are. The catalyst for change is the message of God's impending judgment on them for their evil. You know, our cultural moment wants to say, if God has a job, it's to tell us we're fine the way we are and forgive us. But the biblical God, God of real justice, he doesn't owe anyone forgiveness. Did you know that? He does not owe anyone forgiveness. If you want fairness, we're all getting judgment. He does not owe anyone second, third, fourth, fifth chances. He gives them, but he does not owe them. He could simply let justice fall, couldn't he? He could just let it come. In some ways he has, he is, he certainly will, judgment it's always happening in a process in a variety of ways all the time. One day there's gonna be a final judgment, right? Did you know that? Do you remember? Jesus is gonna come back and we will each stand before him and answer for what we trusted in, for how we lived, with eternal consequences. And in God's grace, he sends the message of warning. It's grace. The message of warning is grace. What would you do without the message of warning? You just keep going. You keep trucking along. But God sends warning. The message of judgment is gracious because it gives the chance to see the issue and repent. And and listen, Jonah knew this. Oh, he knew this. You remember why he did not want to go to Nineveh? You know, we think, I've had people tell me this, you can't preach about God's judgment, no one will listen. See, Jonah's smarter than we are. He didn't want to go preach judgment because he knew they would listen. Friends, if you believe God is sovereign in salvation the only people who are, will ever listen and the people who will certainly listen will listen to the message of judgment. If you're a Christian today, it's because you listened. You listened. I don't wanna preach judgment because I know they'll listen. Look at Jonah four too. we'll cheat. We're gonna see this next week. Jonah prays to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said? When I was in my country, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, what does he know? I knew you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I don't want to go tell them about your impending judgment because they'll believe. Amazing. Amazing. So shocking grace. It is shocking grace. It's shocking in that the message of God's judgment is grace. It's honest. It gives hope to the oppressed, and it gives a chance for repentance. Now we get to see shocking grace and the mercy of repentance. And I think we see four steps uh, in the Ninevites that were shown here They kind of show us what repentance looks like, okay? So if you're following on your Bibles, chapter 3, verse 5. Jonah goes through and he, 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. Wow. Wow. This is God's grace. I mean, I, I don't know what we're supposed to expect for a Jewish prophet who probably has some skin problems (laughs) after being in the fish for three days. (laughs) Maybe this helped his message. I don't know. He comes and he walks through the city. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to wreck you all for your violence. In that day, people are polytheistic. They have no problem believing you got one God for this place, one God for that place. That's how you do it. But Jonah's saying, no, 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 I'm not talking about your Syrian gods. Not really worried about them. It's this God over here, the God of Israel. He's going to wreck you for your violence. And what, what would you what would you think Assyria would do with somebody like that? I would expect that they would kill him. Instead, what do the people of the city do? They believe God. And this this encourages me so much too, because who's talking? Is it Jonah or God? Kind of a trick question, right? It's Jonah. And the, the reason I like this is because Jonah's so imperfect. <laughs> kind of like me. And yet as he preaches God's word, who's talking? God's talking. God's talking when we preach his word faithfully, even, even through fools like me. God's talking, and, and in shocking grace, when people hear God's word, they believe God. It's as if what we heard here, this now defines our reality. This is how I see life now, based on what God said. They believed him. And they agreed with God about their own guilt. You're right. You're right. We're guilty. And they don't give any excuses. So just pause for a minute. On your own, before God and his law, how guilty are you? So many people, right? We all have a little Pharisee in our heart. We'll just... Think of your neighbor. Aren't you better than that person? Uh, Don't you sometimes do good things? Aren't you right with God on your own? No. Believe God on my own. I'm guilty. I'm not just guilty for the good I haven't done, for the evil I have done. I'm guilty for trying to force God to accept my pathetic homemade righteousness instead of being honest according to His word. They believed God and made no excuses. Second thing, you see it in verses five to seven. They not only believed God, but they deeply humbled themselves. We got the whole community. You've got the political leader of the city decreeing fasts, sackcloth, and mainly prayer. Call out mightily to this God. And so you see what's happening. They're taking the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, very seriously. He's not just another God or another option. He's dominating their vision on life. They know they stand before him. That's amazing. These Ninevites know they're guilty before the God of Israel, and they're accountable to him, and judgment's coming, so they humble themselves, and they pray. They call out for mercy. It's the second aspect of repentance. Number one, you believe God. Number two, you humble yourself, and you ask for mercy. Number three... You start to change your ways. Look at verse 8. It's what the king calls for. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and it's so fascinating, and from the violence that is in his hands. Do you know how incredible that is? It fits historical context. Assyria loved brutal violence. And here, this guy seems to get it. It wasn't explicitly in Jonah's message, at least as what we have, he probably said it. He may have said it. But what we have in the text is you're going to be judged in 40 days. And here, here they know what their problem is. The king knows. Turn from your violence, this value of violence. Change your ways. Wow, what an amazing thing. This is what repentance sees. Repentance sees there are things I'm doing in my life that God does not like. And I've got to stop. I've got to stop. You know, in a way, they they kind of put us to shame. You can feel guilty about something, can't you? I mean, I know because I've done it. You can feel guilty about something and make no effort to actually change. Ask the Lord right now how you're doing that. You know good and well what he has said about a certain thing. You feel a little guilty for it. If you're honest with yourself, you're not trying to change. You're not really repenting yet. Believe God. You humble yourself and plead for mercy, and you start to change your ways. Number four, because you hope in grace. Verse 9. Love this. Who knows? God may turn and relent and and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? I like that question because they don't presume that God owes them grace. They don't presume that just because they fasted or cried or believed, they don't presume, well, of course, he owes me grace. They don't presume that at all. They say, who knows? But also, they do hope for grace. He might. He might. Because of course it makes sense. If he just wanted to smoke us, he wouldn't have had to send the, pro- the prophet to tell us. He would have just done it. But instead, he, he sent the prophet to tell us, which means maybe there's a chance. Maybe he'll be gracious. So they hope in God's undeserved mercy. Then the fifth thing we see, shocking, shocking Shocking grace. You read the Bible, and there's one thing it just seems like God cannot resist. Even if it's like a hypocritical hypocritical king like like Ahab, somebody repents with humility, and God is just so drawn to it. And he, he really likes to forgive, to relent in some way from the disaster. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Wow. A community of violent Assyrians repenting at the message of a Jewish prophet. Shocking grace. Shocking grace. And it surprises us from top to bottom, doesn't it? That God would use somebody like Jonah. That the message of judgment would be gracious. And that hard hearts can change from top to bottom, shocking. And that's God's grace. Well, what does it mean for us today? Well, this message points to a greater one in several ways. Uh, first of all, it's worth noting, for Nineveh, this was a, I guess I want to call it a partial repentance, not spiritual conversion, like the sailors in chapter 1. There's a few things that make that explicit. In the sailors in chapter 1, they call upon Yahweh, the Lord, his covenant name. They, offer, they make vows. They offer sacrifices. There's some Old Testament language in there that shows they converted. In this case, it's not God's covenant name that's used in this chapter. Elohim, just a sense that he's God, the creator, and they did fear God to a point, but it kind of went to the extent of, he's right, we should not be so violent. And so they turned from their violence, and so God withheld the temporal judgment of overthrowing their city right then. But there's nothing for us to think that Nineveh, they all went to the temple to worship and and offer sacrifices and migrate to Israel and become... Covenant people of God. Maybe some individuals did. Wouldn't surprise me at all. But in general, that's not what we're to think about, this city. Moreover, give it a generation later, and what is Assyria back at? Full, full throttle. Violence. In fact, God would use violent Assyria to overthrow his unrepentant Israel. The prophet Nahum writes about unrepentant Assyria and the judgment coming for them. And they are overthrown 600 BC by Babylon. Judgment comes. It comes. So there was this partial repentance, but I think we get a lesson here, right? God's working in your life a little bit. And then in our context, maybe it goes like this. You start to go to church, And please don't get me wrong. I'm real happy you're here at church. And I want you to keep coming. And it's important. It's essential. It's the way we live out our faith. Here's the danger. Here's the danger. If your repentance only includes coming to church and nothing in the rest of your life, why do you think that's a real repentance? Because you can... You can fear God to some extent and change a habit. There's nothing particularly miraculous about that. Did you know that? People all over the place do that all the time. You get motivated and change a habit because it's not good for you. That doesn't mean your heart's changed. And so again, we need a greater message. And, and, and the book of Jonah points to a greater message, right? There's a, a greater Jonah with a, a greater message. There's a greater prophet who was sent to preach to the undeserving. And he came preaching judgment. And his is a message for the entire world and for each one of us. And did you know no one talked about hell more than who? Jesus. Look at what Jesus said in Luke eleven thirty two. This is fascinating. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Whoa. Let's let's just see a few realities in this passage. Number one, Jesus called it the judgment. There's lots of judgments, but there's going to be the judgment. (laughs) This is the promise of Jesus Christ and his apostles. Every soul is going to stand before the judge, King Jesus, and answer. And there's going to be no place to hide. No excuse will work. Absolute reality will be seen with absolute clarity. And justice will be done. There is a judgment. And for the people of Jesus' day... Listen, this is scary. They were so religious. They were so religious. But they did not repent and turn to him as their king, as their savior, as their treasure. They were unrepentant. And so Jesus says, justice is so clear that on that day, Ninevites who listened to this, to listen to Jonah and repented of their violence, they'll be like, well, we turned from our violence with him. And, and that will leave no excuse for all these religious folks of the first century who saw Jesus Christ and would not turn. Listen, God is so just that all of the theoretical events of history, every single detail that, is, that has actually happened, it will, all be brought, it will all be brought to bear right then and there. So there is no excuse. There's always someone who had less than you who's responded more heroically than you, if you know what I'm saying. There won't be any excuse. So any excuse you're using right now, just toss that, okay? Won't work. There's a judgment. But look what else Jesus said. There's a message of judgment. But the message of judgment always gives the chance for repentance. It's gracious. It gives a chance for repentance. Why is Jesus here? If God was done with the world, why send him at all? But he sent his only son. What did he say? Luke 5:32. I have not come to call the righteous. Now, if you're righteous in here, you might be worried. You're like, Jesus doesn't love good people? What's Jesus saying? How come he's not come to call the righteous? Because there aren't any righteous. And the one thing that really can disqualify you from belonging to Jesus is you hanging to the idea that in yourself you're righteous. But if you know, and this is the work of God's grace and the message of of judgment, if you know that you're a sinner, I deserve his judgment. I have not loved God. I have not loved my neighbor. If you know you're a sinner, what does he come to call you to? Repentance. Turn from your old way, your other authorities, and turn to, turn to Jesus Christ. Trust yourself to him. So here's the question for us today. Have you believed Jesus at his word? We're sinners and we need him in his grace. Have you humbled yourself before Jesus Christ from the heart? Are you moved to change your ways, to conform to what is pleasing to him? And do you hope in his grace? You know, one more question we have to ask right now is, how, do, how does this work anyway? And I think, really, I think Jonah really struggled with this. Here's what I mean. Back to Nineveh, what does that city deserve for all its horrific violence and oppression? What do they deserve? I mean, they deserve it. They have it common in every way. What do they deserve? They deserve that city to be undone right then. That's what they deserved. And here's God who we're saying is just. What does he do with what they deserve? He decides not to give them what they deserve. Shouldn't that raise a question for you? Have you ever wondered this in your own way? You hear about some wretched, evil person, and then maybe they become a Christian, and you think, can that person really be forgiven? Doesn't it seem too, I mean, a, a judge in a courtroom can't do this, right? Right? A judge in a courtroom, you know, here's, here's this criminal, guilty, 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 evil, evil, like wretched, terrible things. He's guilty. Can the judge in a courtroom just be like, you know what, I can tell you're really sad and uh, you've asked me for mercy, so don't sweat it. No sentence for you. Well, what would the rest of the community need to do with a judge like that? Put him in jail, okay? That's unjust, you, you can't just allow for there not to be a just penalty to wretched crimes. There's a greater justice in the greater Jonah. Just as, in a way, Jonah went down into death, remember, so that the, the sailors could live, and was vomited out, Jesus went into the storm of God's wrath for me and for you, and he rose again. Justice and mercy meet right there at the cross. Justice and mercy meet right there at the cross. Look at Romans 3. For there's no distinction, for all have what? Sin. And there in the Greek, the word all means All, yeah, very good, very good. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have not loved God in the way he deserves. We have not feared him according to his word. We all fall short. Nobody's reached the target. As Paul says earlier, nobody's nobody's righteous on their own, not one. But look at verse 24, shocking grace. We're justified. I want you to feel the the seeming contradiction. He just said, you're not righteous. And then a couple words later, he says, but you're called righteous. So he says, you're guilty, but you're going to be called innocent. You're evil, but you're going to be considered as if you're good. How can God do this? You see, the question of our day is, how can God let bad things happen to good people? The question of thinking people in the Bible is, how can God allow such grace and mercy to such wretched people who deserve his judgment? That's actually the bigger question. And so he says, they're justified by his grace, love you don't deserve as a gift. So what does that word gift communicate? It's free to you. You can't earn it, but you don't have to earn it. It's free to you. Here, take it. You can just have it. This is the scandal of the gospel that wretched, dirty people could be called righteous as a gift. And it's through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ In other words, Jesus paid a price to buy you and have you for himself. And this is how it works in verse 25. Whom God put forward, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means here's the substitute who will take your place. He will take your place, and it happens by his blood. He dies on the cross. How does that help you? How does that get you this gift of being declared righteous, good, innocent, holy when you're not? It's because He took your place. He made the trade, His life for yours. He took what you deserve so that you can have what He deserves. And it's absolutely free and a gift. Why does God do this? Look at verse 26. You learn something here that God cares about. He wants you to know something. God did this in verse 26 to show his, what? Righteousness. God wants the whole world to know something. I hate sin. I am fully just. There has never been. A disobedience or a sin or an injustice that I will not pay back with my mighty vengeance. That's what God's telling you. But He's telling you that on the cross, as Jesus was displayed there, look, I'm righteous. I penalize sin and I'm gracious. Because I penalized your sin for you on the willing substitute in your place. So 26 says, the cross was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be two things, just. Is God holy and just? Does he pour out his wrath on sin? What does the cross show you? Yes. But he's also the justifier. Which you, which means you not only see God's justice, but you see His love. Because of the cross, you see what do, you deserve, but you also see that Jesus is taking it in your place, and you're loved. And there, in Him, you can be forgiven and counted righteous. Second Corinthians five twenty one God made Him who had no sin to be to be sin on our behalf, so that we could become the righteousness of God. It's the great trade. He's the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That's where justice and mercy come together, at the cross. That's why God can be just to say about me and to say about you, righteous, innocent, because He's seeing me and you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ who took our place for us. And so we wear His perfection, we're forgiven by His cross. Because he went down for us, and God vindicated the reality of that by raising him from the dead. By faith in him alone, we're made righteous. And talk about hope in God's grace. Hope in God's grace. Later on, Paul will say this Romans 5 9. Yeah, the day of judgment's coming, right? It's coming. But since, therefore, we have been justified by Jesus' blood, we're already declared righteous right now, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. When it comes, those who have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, will be safe. We'll be safe because it's already taken care of. He took care of it for us. Shocking grace. We've seen the shocking grace of how a message of judgment can change people's heart and bring repentance. So the first question is, have you repented and trusted Jesus? Have you repented and trusted Jesus? Are you a Christian today? Can you know you're right with God today, not based on your own goodness, not based on some religious performance, but on Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection? Trust him. If you are a Christian, are you done repenting? I hope not. I hope not. Believe God. Humble yourself and pray. And especially, what's a practice in your life where you know God is, no, a sign of repentance? Is that by His grace? You want to change those things to be pleasing to God especially because of all that he's done for you in Christ. The third thing to bring out, if you have repented, are you willing to share the real gospel with people? Are you willing to share the real gospel with people? Do I want you to tell people that God loves them? Sure, But if you're not careful, you're going to tell them that God is fine with them the way they are and they don't need to change a thing. And you'll be lying to them. And you're not being very loving when you do that. Are you willing to talk about the real gospel and how sin is really wretched? There is such a thing as justice and God's standard. Can you use yourself as an example? Can you say the way I know I'm right with God is not my goodness? I've sinned, I need a savior. Can you you tell them the real thing so that they can value what Jesus Christ has actually done for them on the cross? Good people don't need Jesus to die for them. There are no good people. And sometimes the most loving thing God can do for us is to show us that about ourselves. And that is going to come through a human communicator. Bring him to church. We'll show them Jesus together. We're going to start Mark in a couple of weeks. Bring an unchurched friend to church or tell him yourself you can do it. And don't you dare think, oh, God doesn't save anybody anymore. These people are too wretched to be saved. Man, are you listening? Did you see what happened in Nineveh? Shocking grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Help us to truly repent and to celebrate what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, to put all our hope in Jesus, his perfection as our Savior. Lord, let us live in light of what we claim belonging to him, that we would put away deeds that we, we know you are against, that we would long to put on thoughts and words and motives and actions that please you because you are worthy, Lord. Such love you have shown us. And we pray, God, that we be faithful communicators in our world, wherever you have given us influence, Lord, to communicate the truth. Let us not be ashamed, of the reality of who you are and what you've said, but let us gently, persuasively, honestly love our neighbor by communicating the real gospel so that they can know the joy of being saved from all their sins, adopted as a child of God, and enjoy you forever. Do this work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.